This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Terawan Saranai, which means the blessings of the Triple Gem be with you. I hope your week has been fruitful and happy. As those who have been following the program will know, we're going through the trainings of a person after they've decided to become a Bodhisattva. If you're inspired by the Buddha and decide you want to follow his example, you have to first become a Bodhisattva, which means developing Bodhicitta and then following the deeds of the Bodhisattva. Can you remember what Bodhicitta is? It's the mind that wishes to attain full enlightenment because that's the best way to help free others from ongoing suffering. Once we decide that is what we want to do, we take the Bodhisattva vows and then practice the six perfections, giving, morality, patience, enthusiasm, concentration and wisdom. If you remember, we said that perfection perfection is not so much the perfect deed as a mental conviction. So, for instance, last week we discussed practicing the perfection of morality, or if you like, ethics. This basically means practicing non-harm until our minds are so tame that not even the slightest thought of harm arises. Nor are we tempted to commit any negative deed, even in our dreams. And if you remember, when we talked about generosity, we said it's the mental attitude that is prepared to give everything, even down to one's body and life. We are now moving on to the third perfection, patience. But before we continue into the discussion, Let's just set our motivation for participating in this program today. As I've said before, motivation is what makes an action karmically positive or negative, not whether the action appears to be good or bad. Or bad. So now, let's set the best motivation we can for this program so that it becomes really effective for our future. That motivation is to gain enlightenment to help all beings free themselves from suffering. Please take a moment to set such a motivation. Thank you. Now, as with the other perfections, when we talk about the perfection of patience, we're referring to a mental attitude rather than any physical deed or situation. This perfection is described as the virtuous mind motivated by bodhicitta that has three characteristics. It is not moved by any harm inflicted by others, it will, in, it will voluntarily endure any suffering and it remains continually thinking about the Dharma. If you have the perfection of patience, it doesn't mean that you have overcome all your enemies and harmful people in the sense of having killed them or sent them off to Australia. That's impossible, but if we control our minds so that anger and impatience can never arise again, it will be the same as overcoming our enemies. As Geshe Lodin's text The path to enlightenment in Tibetan Buddhism says, Were it necessary to subdue all unruly beings in order to gain the perfection of patience, then, because there are still unruly beings now, it would imply that all the Buddhas in the past have failed to gain the perfection of patience. The real perfection of patience is to remove totally the last traces of anger and impatience from one's mind. At that point, the Bodhisattva overcomes all problems and hindrances simply by subduing the mind. Think of the person who gives you the most trouble, the one who brings some kind of tension or agitation to your mind when you think about them. Of course, you can do something unpleasant to to them to try and make them disappear from your life, and you may feel a certain kind of relief. 
But that is usually not much of a solution. For one thing, harming others will bring powerful negative karma that will torment you even more in the future. And for another, even in this life, that kind of action may well come back to haunt you. Wouldn't it be better to get rid of your aggressive reaction instead? For then, not only would you be free of the mental tension, but you could actually create positive karma by developing kindness towards them. I like to remember incidents from the life story of St. Therese of Lisieux, an extraordinary Carmelite nun who lived in the 19th century. One of these incidents relates to a nun who everybody knew was very disagreeable. Sister Therese, as she was then known, offered herself as an aid to this nun who didn't treat her well at all. One day, when she had suffered a lot from the sister, a novice asked her why she looked so happy. The novice was very surprised when Sister Therese told her, Because Sister Sansa has been saying disagreeable things to me. What pleasure she's given me. I wish I could meet her now and give her a sweet smile. And as she said that, the disagreeable nun knocked on the door, and the novice was able to see how Sister Therese treated her with utmost love. Later, Sister Therese said that she soared so high above earthly things that humiliations only made her stronger. Sister Therese had quite a unique view on life. In direct, direct contrast to most of us, who are constantly on the lookout for pleasures and avoiding discomforts, she embraced suffering as a way of reaching beyond this life to God. All her life she had had bad health. In fact, she eventually died of TB. But she never used that as an, as an excuse to shirk even the slightest duty. We should go to the very end of our strength before we complain, she once said, and would help at the very early morning prayers suffering from dizziness or extreme headaches. I am able to walk, and so I ought to be at my duty. With this undaughtered energy, she could do things most of us would not even contemplate. We might think this is a crazy way to behave, but by the end of her life, St. Therese had developed an enormous strength and resolve, and in a way she had completely transcended the suffering. Not that she didn't feel the pain, but that she was able to go way beyond it. In her nunnery, she was in charge of the novice nuns, and they became quite upset when they saw how much she was suffering. But she said to them, I do not grieve about me. I have reached a point where I can no longer suffer because all suffering has become so sweet. Besides, it's quite a mistake to trouble yourselves as to what I may still have to undergo. It's like meddling with God's work. We who run in the way of love must never allow ourselves to be disturbed by anything. If I did not simply live from one moment to another, it would be impossible for me to be patient. But I only look at the present, I forget the past, and I took, take good care not to forestall the future. When we yield to discouragement or despair, it's usually because we think too much about the past and the future. How's that for a lesson in mindfulness that we Buddhists can learn from? And when we reach that measure of patience, really what can disturb us? At another time she said, Our Lord's will fills my heart to the brim, and hence, if aught else is added, it cannot penetrate to any depth, but like oil on the surface of limpid waters, glides easily across. If my heart were not already brimming over, and must needs be filled by the feelings of joy and sadness that alternate so rapidly, then indeed it would be flooded by a wave of bitter pain. But these quick succeeding changes 
scarcely ruffle the surface of my soul, and in its depths there reigns a peace that nothing can disturb. Just on a mundane level, it would probably have been easy for in St. Therese Nunnery to get angry or irritated with the continual round of religious observances, being stuck day in and day out with the same people, the difficult food and the cold beds, corridors and chapel, especially in winter. But that would have just led to an endless round of suffering, both for herself and for everyone in the nunnery. I guess the disagreeable nun St. Therese was aid for was just like that. But St. Therese decided that anger and irritation were not an answer, and so took on the suffering, and with a basis of love, developed infinite patience. Not only did that help her to become transcendent, but brought so much peace and inspiration to the other nuns. Every little thing became an opportunity for practice for her. In her memoir, she tells of how during meditation one of the other nuns, continually fidgeting with her rosary, made a noise that disturbed the peace. It bothered Sister Therese until she sweated with irritation. At last, she says, instead of trying not to hear it, which was impossible, I set myself to listen, as though it had been some delightful music, and my meditation, which was not a prayer of the quiet, passed in offering this music to the Lord. Isn't this very similar to when Buddhists sit in silent meditation and let every noise, every sensation pass on by, merely noting them and not becoming involved? Of course, Sister Therese was involved, but managed to turn the distraction into a sublime offering. And so can we, when we transform our irritations into patience and goodwill. This is the answer to the question, why develop patience? In this rushed world of ours, it would seem that it is the impatient ones, those always on the move, demanding that it be done now, if not two hours ago, that succeed. And perhaps that may be right, even to just a certain degree, if you're talking in terms of competitiveness, material wealth, and value for the shareholders. But in terms of psychology, it's madness. Impatience is a forerunner for anger. With a continually impatient mind, we can drop into anger at the slightest thwarting of our expectation. And that is just a mark of the intense stress we are putting ourselves under. For what? For a few dollars more in the bank? To buy a status with the, with the symbol BMW? Is it really worth it? But it is the long-term effects of impatience and anger that are really the most damaging. We can see quite plainly the immediate effect on people we know and on ourselves, and it's not pretty. The long-term effects are much worse. By habituating ourselves to impatience and anger, particularly anger, we're creating karmic imprints that will land us up in very uncomfortable environments in the future. The scriptures say that the most obvious cause for the hell realm is anger, and in a way this makes sense. Anger is hot, claustrophobic, unreasonable and frightening. And isn't that a good description of a hell? When our imprints of anger ripen, that is exactly how they will do so, in a hot, aggressive, unreasonable and terrifying state. And because we are so attuned to it, our anger will resurface and cause us to create more aggressive, harmful actions that lead to more negative karma to involve us in more and more greater suffering. Whereas if we can develop patience, our minds will become accustomed to reacting with peace and tolerance, 
and so our future lives will also be much more comfortable. It is also said in the text that if we become angry with a high being, like a Bodhisattva or a Buddha, we destroy in an instant all the merit we've gained from making offerings, generosity and so on for hundreds of eons. It is very difficult to create pure merit in samsara, and we need huge amounts of it to become a Buddha. So to destroy eons worth for a moment of anger is more harmful than pointless. We're talking here not of the merit from meditating on wisdom and so on, that cannot be destroyed by anger, but the merit we collect from being generous, keeping vows and so on. Unless that is dedicated correctly, it can be eliminated by anger. The seed on our mind that contained the merit will still be there, but it will have lost its power. So something that might have resulted in many years of happiness now may only result in a small happiness or none at all. The problem is that we don't know who is a bodhisattva or great being. They usually don't go around announcing, Hey, look at me, I'm a great bodhisattva. Instead, they hide their qualities and just appear as ordinary people. So how do you know whether it's a bodhisattva you are getting angry with or not? At least if we can train ourselves to be completely free of harmful thoughts to others and not get angry with anybody, we don't have to worry about being irritated at a bodhisattva and creating causes to land up in some kind of hellish existence. Anger's greatest companions are malice, fear, ignorance, loneliness and lack of resources. And who wants to be associated with that crowd of losers? For instance, the more attuned to anger we become, the more we become fearful of others' reaction to us, and so the more malice and distrust we have towards others. That leads to others shunning us, and so we lack friends and become increasingly lonely and isolated. Then when we need resources or help, like for instance if we get sick, who will be at our side to give us the assistance we need? Some years ago, I read about a man by the name of Edwin Tahara, who lived in Rotorua. He had gang connections, and one day he got into an argument with a man and a woman sitting in a car. The man in the car produced a gun, and a struggle ensued in which Tahara was shot in the neck. The man and woman in the car shot off, but Tahara staggered up a driveway nearby and collapsed and died before help could arrive. Now evidently, Tahara had lived a life of violence. One of the incidents he was involved in was running down a forecourt attendant at a petrol station and ramming him through the petrol station's glass window. It all began when Tahara gave an attendant $10 for petrol but managed to put $18 worth of fuel in his car. Then he claimed he had no more money and although the attendant, Glenn Bennett, offered to pay $5 out of his own pocket, Tahara demanded they siphon the extra petrol out. When that was done, he then accused the attendant of taking out too much and jumping in his car, drove at Bennett, collecting him on, collecting him on the bonnet and drove it through the station window. Later, when Tahara was killed, Bennett said that he still vividly remembered the man's blind rage when he drove through the window. Other people who knew Tahara and were interviewed by the papers at the time of his death said he had been a very violent man people feared and had been in and out of jail for assaults. What a life! But I think it was the great example of where habituating yourself to anger leads you. Compare Tahara's life to Sister Teresa's and the difference between cultivating anger and cultivating patience becomes abundantly clear. 
with all that aggression on his mind at death time, what chance did Terahara have of finding a peaceful and joyful life after he died? And with all her acceptance of suffering and service to others, with all her sweetness in the face of a dreadfully hard life, wouldn't Sister Therese have every chance of finding great peace after her death? Here is the description of how she died. Suddenly she raised herself, as though called by a mysterious voice, and opening her eyes, which shone with unutterable happiness and peace, fixed her gaze a little above the statue of Our Lady. Thus she remained for about the space of a credo, when her blessed soul, now become the prey of the divine eagle, was borne away to the heights of heaven. Compare that with the death of a man shot in, shot in the neck after a violent argument, begging for help at the door of a stranger. And also compare the thousands, perhaps millions of people who have been inspired by St. Therese with a comment of a woman who knew Tahara and his violent associates. She was referring to the person who killed Tahara when she said, The gunman will have a target on his head now. Instead of inspiration, revenge and violence continues. More people get hurt and nothing is solved. Isn't it true of individuals, families, tribes and nations that when one violently offends another, it leads to vengeance, which in turn leads to more vengeance and so on endlessly? I've spoken before in this series of programs about the sons of families in Albania who cannot leave home because of blood feuds with other families. Someone from one family kills someone from another and the social code says it's right of the victim's family to take revenge on any male of the killer's family except in their home. So when two families get into a blood feud in, in Albania, the men become more or less housebound, maybe for life. And what is behind it but someone yielding to anger and not practicing patience, forgiveness and love? It is so beyond the bounds of reason. But then so is anger. Think about it. When you get angry, the reasons for your anger seem very compelling, don't they? They make the anger seem so right. But when the strong emotion has passed, those same reasons appear totally unreasonable. When our mind is calm, we can think of a dozen better ways we could have handled the situation that would have led to peace and avoided all the disturbance. This became very clear to me a little while ago when I was traveling to Auckland from Hamilton and giving someone I, I knew a lift in the car. The journey started amicably enough, but then just after we'd passed Huntley, the other person started same, saying some very negative things about someone else we both knew, and I became quite upset. I asked him to stop talking in that way, but he persisted, and I suddenly lost all patience. I yelled at him and even stopped the car to chase him out, even though I knew what I was doing was being foolish. After a while, we continued on the journey, but I said nothing further to him, which at least stopped him from co continuing with the slanderous talk. But my behavior was really inexcusable. I lost any semblance of patience I had cultivated and created a great and unnecessary disturbance that quite probably didn't achieve anything, except prove that I have quite a lot of work to do on patience, purifying negative karma, and getting back on track to behaving like a monk should. Thinking back on it now, if I'd stayed calm and just kept my mouth firmly shut, his chatter would probably have died its own death. Although I'm, insp although I'm inspired by Sister Therese, 
I'm nowhere near her level of accomplishment yet. But then I certainly haven't embraced suffering as she did either. So when anger takes over, our mind becomes completely reactive and our better judgment is usually all but clouded over. As I pointed out in a previous program, when we covered the afflictive emotion anger, generally in this life three things bring us contentment. Good health, good friends and plentiful resources. As long as people have those three, they're moderately happy. But when we get into a rage, those three no longer seem important at all. The only thing that seems important is to overpower the enemy before us and perhaps give them something unpleasant to think about. Friendship, valued possessions, health, all fly out the door. Say, for instance, you have an argument with your partner and you get angry, really angry. You get so boiling mad that you pick up the nearest thing to you and hurl it at your partner. It happens to be your expensive iPhone and it misses your partner and smashes against the wall. You may have waited for months and spent a good deal of, your, of a week's salary on this particular gadget, but as it smashes against the wall and dies, you couldn't care less. It's only later, when you've cooled down, that you look at the mangled wreckage on the floor, realize what you've done, and that you're going to have to spend another wad for another one of Steve Jobs' attractive little toys. The object doesn't have to be an iPod, of course. It could be any possession that under normal circumstances means something to you. Then immediately after the fight, you're so worked up that you have to go into your room and bang the door shut just to try to cool down. Your heart palpitates, you feel short of breath, and your blood feels like it's racing through your veins. You may even feel nauseous. Not only is your health badly affected immediately after the bout of anger, but if you continue reacting like that, you become a prime candidate for a heart attack. A Johns Hopkins Medical School study over 48 years found that young men who reacted to stress with anger were three times more likely to suffer from chronic heart, heart disease before the age of 55 than those of the same age who let stressful situations roll off their backs. And anger is no less deadly for women, according to the American Heart Association. A North Carolina study published in the journey Circulation showed that out of 256 men and women who had heart attacks, those familiar with anger as a reaction were also three times more likely to have a heart attack than those le least prone to anger. The results were true for people with normal blood pressure levels. So not only do your possessions suffer, but so does your health. And, of course, the more you make anger a stock reaction, the less people want to have anything to do with you. How many people do you think would call themselves a true friend of someone who led their life like Edwin Tahara? Can you say someone is your true friend if they're afraid of you half the time? I don't think so. Another disadvantage of anger associated with its effect on our health is how it changes our appearance. At the time of anger, our face can become like the face of a demon. It becomes red and puffed up, our eyes bulge, our mouth snarls, and even the nose flares. Looking at such a person can be really scary. But even if the face doesn't become demonic, it sort of closes off, like the gate of a city that's being attacked, and then it's very difficult to communicate with. My father was like that. When he got angry, he would just close down and not communicate for days. Of course, this kind of passive aggression doesn't make for a happy household at all. Nor does it make for an attractive person. 
the eyes become dull and stern, and the mouth set hard like in stone, and all communication is in monosyllables. When we habituate ourselves to this kind of behavior, it has a karmic effect also. In the future, we will be born as unattractive people, not only spiritually, but physically as well. This may be illustrated by the story of a man who was helping to, buy, to build a stupa for a rich devotee a long time before the Buddha's time. The stupa was very great, and the man became disillusioned with the amount of effort and time it was taking. Angrily, he questioned why the stupa had to be so big and grand. Later, when the stupa was built, and he saw how magnificent it was, the man repented his previous criticism, and in penance, bought a beautiful-sounding bell to hang on it. Then in the Buddha's time, one of his devotees who became a monk was known for his extremely beautiful voice. One day the king and the queen was visiting the monastery where the Buddha was staying and heard this monk chanting. They were entranced by the exquisite voice and asked the Buddha if they could meet its owner. The Buddha said the monk was busy and tried to make excuses for him, but the royal couple were insistent, so the Buddha eventually agreed to take them to see him. When the Buddha opened the door to the cell where he was chanting, the king and queen were horrified, for there was the ugliest person they'd seen in their lives. They were really revolted. They asked the Buddha what could have caused someone who had such a beautiful voice to be so ugly, and the Buddha told the story of the man who had built the stupa and donated the bell. Because he had criticized the stupa, he'd been born so ugly, but because he'd donated the bell, he was born with a sublime voice. This story indicates the karmic results of our anger on our appearance. So even though we may be very beautiful in this life, if we give in to anger, it is possible we will really, really revolt people in, the, in our coming lives. The point here is that anger has the potential to destroy all things that make for happiness in this life, our good resources, our friendships, our health, and even our appearance. In Buddhist texts, it is called the worst enemy, so it's really something we have to guard ourselves against. And the best way to do that is by cultivating patience. You are probably wondering, if this program is about the perfection of patience, why we've been going on about anger for so long. In the Galukpa tradition, the motivation for practicing patience comes from understanding what is likely to happen if we don't cultivate patience, which means letting ourselves be overcome by anger, and the advantages of practicing patience. If we know that anger is our greatest enemy, we will want to do something to arm ourselves against it, and that means developing patience. But if we think that it's okay to let anger take its course, why then practice patience? And with that question, I have to say farewell. I hope we've given you something to think about today, that you will be back with us next week as we continue discussing the perfection of patience. Please dedicate any positive energy we've accumulated from this program to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Thank you for listening, and until next week, goodbye. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.